Well, welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm so glad that you are here. If this is your first time especially, we extend to you a warm welcome. If this is your 631st time here, we extend to you a warm uh, welcome. We've got the air on, so it won't be, you know, it'll be a cooler welcome in just a little bit. A um, couple of things I wanted to mention. My name is Brad Talley, by the way. I'm the teaching pastor here at Grace a uh, couple of things I wanted to mention. David already mentioned earlier. Some of you were not in here. We have a men's breakfast on uh, Saturday morning. Uh, we have been having some really great discussions about prayer. Uh, that's our focus. If you would uh, join us at 8 o'clock Saturday morning. Um, also, uh, l- let me start on Monday and then go to Wednesday of this week. Tomorrow... In Fuquay Varina, Bentwin's Country Club, uh, there's a gentleman speaking uh, called, um, I knew his name, Ken Smith. There you go. Ken Smith is, was chaplain for a long time for the Florida State uh, Seminoles when Bobby Bowden was there. He has Bobby Bowden's sense of humor. He's a pastor. So it's, he's quite an entertaining speaker, and he brings a good word. And there are at least four, maybe five of us going from uh, Grace that are going to sit at the same table. It's $10. You can show up at 1130 at Bentwins or from noon to 1 is the official time. It's a delicious meal. So check with me if you would be interested in going that if you were a man. You know, it's not for women. No women allowed in that one. You'll get your turn another time. They have priority associates for women as well. But then on Wednesday... Uh, it's our quarterly day of fasting and prayer. Uh, elders have asked our congregation to join together and uh, t- to refrain from eating all through the day on Wednesday. Now, if you you know eat a meal Tuesday night and then when we finish, we, we can break the fast. So it's like a 24-hour fast that we're encouraging you to participate in. You may not. If you want to, you can go on all the way through Wednesday night. But we're going to gather here at 6.30, and I want to ask for a larger-than-usual representation because for whatever reason, the Lord has called our body to suffer right now. Look, it's it's not that, you know, you came here and, boy, the Lord hit you. You would have been somewhere else and the Lord would have hit you, but he's, He's brought us together. To suffer so much so that I'm almost certain that I'm moving toward the book of Job this fall. To talk, to preach about suffering and to see all that God has to say about it. But we typically pray for a number of different issues at these Wednesday night uh, sessions after a day of fasting. But this time we're going to pray for those in our body who are hurting. Uh, Amy and Khalil just back from New York after... Barry and uh, Amy's father, uh, Khalil's grandfather, praise the Lord, he came to Jesus one week before. Uh, he, he, he went to be with the Lord. We're so grateful for that, praise the Lord. Um, but that's just a lot of pain, don't you know? And others of you have received diagnoses of cancer and, and some are uh, uh, unemployed or underemployed for a long time. And we want to be praying for you. Now, Scripture is going to talk about it today. Our text today is going to talk about some of these needs. And so we're going to gather and pray. 6.30 Wednesday night. We typically go 30 minutes or so. We may go a little bit longer. Not exactly sure how we're going to do this yet. You know, we may want to pray very specifically for some individuals who are having especially health is- issues uh, in, in, in their own bodies and uh, just to lay hands on them and pray. Not exactly sure, but be here Wednesday night and you'll hear more about it as we go. If you're unable to fast on that day, if you can fast another day or if you can't come and join us, please uh, join us in, in the fast. Well, I, I think it would be no shock to you when I say that not everyone believes in God, but most have a sense that there is something more to life than the natural senses can detect. It's just more to this life. In fact, uh, you know, Allison, uh, Allison's father died 
two weeks to the day after Linda died. And she got the word in Raleigh that her dad was very sick in Australia. And she got on the first plane that she could. But listen, you're not going to get to Australia in the next three hours. It's just not happening. And so she was praying, Lord, help him to, to, to hang in there. And so indeed he did. She got there on a Wednesday morning, correct? Monday morning. That's right, because it was Monday, two weeks later. Monday morning, went to the uh, hospital, to the rest home where he was. The family was there the entire day. They stepped out for a very brief meal, and he passed. How many times do you hear those kinds of things? Someone in a coma hangs on for days, and then the last family person gets there. doesn't always work that way. And you may be remembering someone that passed just before you got there, and this is not very comforting to you. But I'm just telling you, you hear these b- bizarre stories about people who would seem to have no control whatsoever over their own destiny, and yet there's just something more to this life than we can put our finger on. Most people are religious at some level. I mean, those who claim that there is nothing beyond this natural world often show cracks in that confident veneer when it comes time for them to die. Christopher Hitchens, I went to see Christopher Hitchens debate Michael English from, uh, uh, Adam English, I'm sorry, from uh, Campbell up in Raleigh at the Unitarian Church. Oh, my goodness, this man was brutal. Listen, I, I don't suppose he, he, he reserved all of his venom for evangelical Christians, but he thought that this notion, the, these ridiculous notions of heaven and hell and God and pie in the sky, we ought to be above that in the 21st century. In fact, Jerry Falwell died on that day, that, that day, and he said, I'm going to have to cut this debate a little bit short because then I'm going to go to... Um, the local studio and CNN's going to interview me. So, of course, I, I got home to see that. And many of you know Jerry Falwell. He said, well, I'm glad the fat toad was found dead on his floor. He missed the rapture, at least. I mean, he was just acerbic all the time. He was horrible in the things that he said about Christians. And then he was diagnosed with cancer. And I saw another interview with him later. And it's not that he was welcoming the prayers of believers, but he was accepting them and, in fact, grateful. He said, you know, people tell me they're praying for me, and, and, and I appreciate that. I still don't believe. But you could tell it softened quite a bit. Same with Carl Sagan, renowned atheist, got cancer. And I don't know whether he ever began to doubt what he believed, but he was certainly bemoaning in his last days the fact that this glorious life was almost over. And then there's nothing, but most of us realize there is more than what we can see. The fact that the vast majority of the world is religious is indicative of widespread belief in the supernatural If you admit there is a God, then the next question, of course, has to be, how can you know Him, and how should you relate to this God? Well, the more important question is this, is it even possible possible for us to get to God, or is our only hope of knowing Him that He reveal Himself to us? A lot of wars have been fought over those questions. If you're new to grace, you'll want to know that we're in a study, the Gospel of Mark. And the debate about who God is and how we relate to Him has been raging through this entire study. The debate is between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem and the religious leaders in Galilee. They're all made up of Israel. The, 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 the ones in, in Jerusalem, though, in Judea, are sort of the head over everyone, and this debate has been going on from the very beginning. These leaders of the Jewish people were quite religious, and in fact, as the leaders of the people 
to whom Yahweh had revealed himself, they were convinced that they were on better terms with God than anybody else. Jesus not only challenged their claims, he not only said, I I disagree, but he told them that he had been sent directly from God, and in fact, he was God. Furthermore, he exposed their hypocrisy and their true motive for leading God's people, which was to amass power and glory for themselves rather than glorifying God. In our study of Mark, we have reached the final week of Jesus' life. You ever noticed how much attention is given to the last week of Jesus' life in the Gospels? I mean, um, Luke gives it a little more than a fourth, but, but... but Mark and, and Matthew tend to give it almost a third of their time is spent, and John gives it almost half. <clears throat> the last week of Jesus' life was really important, obviously. That week began, of course, on Sunday with Jesus triumphantly going into Jerusalem. Well, that's what we call it. He came as a king. He was hailed as a king. The Jewish leaders noticed it. Lots of other things happened. Debates were raging. Until the time that they finally found a way to have Jesus tried and executed. And then that week goes all the way to the next Sunday when... Well, the Sunday, just one week later from the triumphal entry when Jesus rose from the dead. In our study of Mark, this um, first Passion Week confrontation with Jesus and the leaders in Jerusalem occurred in chapter 11, verses 12 through 33. That's where we were last week. I had intended to only be there last week, but there was so much, I just said, just got to stop. Let's, let's take a break and we'll come back to this. Then I had planned to, you know, include some of chapter 12, but there's just too much here. So we're going to spend our time once again today, Mark 11, 12 to 33, and then uh, we'll come to the Lord's table. Let me say just by quick review that the cursing of the fig tree in this chapter is one of the most controversial stories in all of the Gospels. People say, why would Jesus put a perfectly good tree to death? Why would he kill a tree? If you weren't here last Sunday, today's message is going to make a lot more sense if you'll go back and go to our website and check on that, click on that sermon from last week and, and, and see what leads up to this today. Uh, For the moment, I'll just say that Jesus' hunger and the fig tree that had leaves but no fruit were used by Jesus as a material illustration of a spiritual point that he was making. It wasn't the time for figs, and so he's not saying, hey, I curse you for doing what you're incapable of doing. He's making a spiritual point about the temple and and the entire religious system that is led by the scribes and the elders of Jerusalem, the priests, scribes, and elders of Jerusalem. God had established the system that they led, but it had been hijacked by the leaders. God's sovereign, of course, but it had been hijacked by the leaders who very slowly over time turned a system that pointed toward God and, and inspired faith in God into an impressive show that pointed much more to the high standard that the leaders had amongst the people. And it gave them power over the people. If you don't do this, this, and this, you're going to hell. I'm going to guess some of you grew up in a lot of churches. I grew up in churches just like that. You know, you do this, this, and this, and this, and this. You're going to, look, we're all going to hell apart from something happening radical in our lives. And that's Jesus. It ain't that I didn't go drinking last week. Which is a good thing, you know, if you don't go drinking. All the things that, you know, that, that they want to point a finger. It's right that we live that way. We're incapable of living the way God requires. And so we're in big trouble. And, and these leaders were saying, you better not do this. And they were doing it on the side or they were doing it in their minds. So, much of the, what the leaders required of the people was biblical. 
But they had added a great deal to God's word. Um, well, I, I want to talk about this sometime, but you know, the teaching in 1 Corinthians, where, in Romans, where he talks about don't doing something to offend your brother. Think about the issue at hand there. It's eating meat especially. It's eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul says, what, what, what is meat that's been sacrificed? What's an idol? Of course you can eat that meat. That's no big deal. But if you take someone who has come to the faith and you take him to a market where they're selling meat that has been offered to idols and he was a pagan and he worshipped those idols and that brings those memories back to him and he's like, wow, I love this. And he walks away from the faith. That's what offending means. You know, it's not... I am offended that you went to that movie. Or I am offended that you... Look, believe it or not, there were people that were offended because Christians in my early years, bold. I don't know. I don't get it. But played, card, played cards. What are you... Are you playing Rook or are you using the devil's deck? You know? I mean, I, it's just... I, I, it, really. And, and so, you know, when somebody says... That action offends me as a Christian. You don't, know what you're, you don't know what you're talking about. He's not saying that I've got a little list and if you offend me with this list, what he was saying was if you cause somebody to walk away from Jesus, you cause them to abandon their faith. Well, they never had the faith to begin with, but, but, but clearly our job is to point people to Jesus and don't let your behavior do otherwise. So the religious leaders were right in much of what they required of people, but they just kept adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. But Scripture had pointed to Jesus all along, and the very people who should have known Him didn't. Well, maybe they did, and they just rejected Him. Why Why was it so easy to reject Jesus? Because, look, nobody expected God to become man, live a life that we're incapable of living, and die a death that we deserve, and then be resurrected from the grave. Nobody expected that. So we're back to the question, do we work our way to God, or does He come down to rescue us from our helpless state? More as we go. But because of the length of the text and the possibility of a comment or two along the way, please remain seated, but I want to read through this text. And then we'll start at the end and then back up just a little bit. But it's all related, so it doesn't matter the order we use. Verse 12 of Mark 11. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. This is now Monday morning. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry them through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting from Isaiah 56. And listen, a principle that I mentioned last week, I didn't really emphasize it, but this is a really, it's a huge principle for you. Understanding the Gospels in particular. Whenever Jesus pointed to a scripture in the Old Testament, he expected people to understand the context all around it. Not just a little phrase that he used. So in that way, he could say so much more. Look, when you know the lingo of a group or a company or or, or a team, or whatever. Somebody can say a few words, and, and the room erupts in laughter, and you're like, uh, what? And they say, oh, you don't know, do you? Well, see, Jesus was expecting them to know more than he was saying. And so when Jesus points to an Old Testament, he's like, what? What is that about? 
Well, then you start to read the wrong things into it. He was emphasizing the fact that this temple, not so much that they were selling things they shouldn't sell, although they shouldn't be. But his main frustration was this place is supposed to be where the Gentiles reflect on God. And you've made it a den of robbers, a place where you feel so secure in your relationship with God that you can do anything you want. Now go back and listen to the message from last week and it'll make more sense. I better quit or I'm going to preach both messages today. But the, but the more important word that Jesus said was, and, and the, um, uh, well, it, you have made it a, a den of robbers. This is from Jeremiah 7, verses, verse 11, I believe. But he's pointing to Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15, in which God said, you've made my house your place where you think you can go out and live any way you want to, do anything you want to, deny me, worship other gods. You come back here and you think just because this is my house, you were safe and secure, I'm going to tear it down. So when Jesus says, you've made this house a den of robbers, he's saying, I'm going to tear it down. Think about all that's said in that. I'm God. And you're wrong. This is done. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him rightly, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That is a great promise until it doesn't work. We're going to talk about that. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? What things? Where he had come in the day before and turned over the tables and just made a mess of everything. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then do you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they held that John really was a prophet. The people people believed John was a prophet. They didn't. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, um, pride, arrogance, it's just, it's just the tiniest distance from our hearts and minds all the time. We think about these prideful leaders and then we recognize with pride that we know better than them. Uh, We only know what you've allowed us to know. In humility, Lord, may we receive your word on this day. May it make a difference. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The debate between Jesus and the leaders was about authority, wasn't it? That's almost always what it's about. That's, look, inner office, politics, politics and on a team or on the, on the league or politics in school, politics. Everywhere. It's, it's about authority. If I don't have the authority but I want it, I find ways to gain authority. And if I have it, I want to make sure you know that I have it. 
Well, there's a big debate about authority going on. And, 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 and the, the Pharisees said, who do you think you are coming in here and acting like that? How dare you question and challenge our authority? The managers of God's house, he has given us the authority in his word. How dare you? The Jewish leaders understood what, that was at, what was at stake, even if the disciples didn't. It, it would be impossible to overstate the importance of the temple to, to Jewish life. The temple was the all-inclusive primary institution of, of Israel's religious, political, economic life. Everything happened at the temple. It was the central bank, the Capitol building, and Wall Street all rolled up in one. Hugely important to Israel. It had become a symbol of God's abiding favor. But that favor had been taken for granted. And so they asked Jesus, what gives you, who gives you the right to question our authority? And so Jesus answered with a question. He said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, believe it or not, the Jewish leaders wouldn't have been offended by Jesus asking them, them a question. This was rabbinical banter at its finest. And they were absolutely, that's the way they did back in that day. So is it this? Well, I will ask you a question as well. And they would go back and forth. And they were certain, these leaders were certain they could best this backwater hayseed who somehow had gathered this following to himself, this Jesus. They knew that they could best him until he spoke. It wasn't unusual for a teacher to ask a question in response to a question, but it was Unusual to stare down the ruling leaders of the day and say, I will refuse to answer your question unless you answer mine. So they huddled together to strategize. And this is a movie, right? I mean, this is a movie. Here are the leaders of the day saying, tell me this question. Jesus said, you, you answer my question. And they say, just a minute, you know. And they huddle up. And, and already it's going badly for the leaders. You know it is. I mean, their answer, look, their actions expose their duplicitous hearts, but their answers put the amen to it. I mean, in a matter of seconds, they went from high and mighty in the eyes of everyone to those who were fearful of man. Because you know there were people standing around saying, yeah, I'd like to know the answer to that question. I mean, we know John was a prophet. What are you going to say? Nobody had ever had the courage to challenge these guys. Jesus did. And they were afraid of what the people might do if they told the truth. They would never agree that John the Baptist had been sent from God because then they would have to acknowledge that Jesus had been sent from God. And they would have to say, you're right, I stop right now and we bow before you. Without either side giving an answer, the question of authority was settled to all who had eyes to see and ears to hear. And as Jesus had said essentially from the very beginning of his ministry, time for a change. God is the ultimate authority in our lives. In his wisdom, he has put earthly structures of authority over us in government, in family, in church, in work. But the ultimate authority for any of us is in God. But Jesus is not here before us, so then what? Well, is it the church? No. The church probably has more authority than evangelical Protestants want to say in America, but should have more authority, I should say. But the authority is not in the church. Read what Martin Luther said about the church. Some pretty... Look, if you, if you believe bowling is bad, you wouldn't believe the things that came out of Martin Luther's mouth in, in starting the, the Reformation. 
some of the things that he said. So our, our authority is in God, and it, and it can only be found in Scripture. Because this is the way he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so some people start to peck at this authoritative word and they say, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about this. I don't know about that. And then they begin to think that they lessen God's authority in their lives. When we question the validity of ancient text in light of contemporary culture, we become more about form than relationship. We stand in judgment of God rather than submit to His judgment. Well, my God wouldn't judge people because of who they love. Or my God wouldn't send people to hell. Now, that's not intended to make light of extremely difficult topics. But if we question things in that matter, who's God? Is it me or is it the one that I have problems with about the way that he has structured things? I mean, do I determine who God is or is God just who he is? And it behooves me to accept just exactly who he says that he is. I mean, if you're in a foreign country and you find yourself on a bus and a police officer walks in and he motions for you, you don't speak the same language, he motions for you to move. I mean, are you going to say, well, in my way of thinking, policemen ought not to act that way. I refuse to give you my seat. If you're out of your mind, you might say something like that. Most likely, you're just going to say, yes, sir, and you're going to get up and move. If you're in a country that is somewhat democratic, you might glare a little bit. If you're in a totalitarian country, of course, you're just going to get up and try to become invisible. So ultimately, we have to choose, are we going to follow Scripture or are we going to follow the views of the day? I mean, these leaders challenged Jesus based on Scripture. How much worse, how much, how much worse to base our thoughts about who God ought to be based on what society at large thinks? Don't you feel increasingly out of place in this world? So ultimately, the appeal is for you to follow Scripture and thus submit to God's authority in your life. So I realize there are areas where men and women who are godly disagree. They willingly submit to the authority of God's word even in their disagreement. But, but the disagreements that are, that are on important topics are really few. Uh, many of the areas that we wish Scripture took a different view toward or held a different view toward really are much clearer than we want them to be. I mean, we work and work and work to say, well, I just can't believe that's exactly the way it's supposed to be, but it's, it's pretty clear. We have the luxury of debating one another because God isn't standing right in front of us. I'm not sure that would matter, though. I mean, Jesus was right in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It interests me, and, and really it somewhat amuses me, that probably these Jewish leaders were the only ones who got what Jesus was saying. They understood what he was saying. I'm from God. In fact, I am God. You're not children of God. In fact, you are the children of the devil. And you have led people astray. You've led them away from me. And God is going to destroy this entire system. And I, being God, am going to destroy this temple, this system. And from now on, God will dwell in the hearts of his people. Now, the Jewish leaders didn't believe Jesus, but they did understand what he was saying. They just flat out rejected it. The disciples couldn't 
of the people who followed Jesus had such trouble because they also thought that the leaders were right. That's all they'd ever known. And these were really fine, upstanding people. And, and yet, there was this conflict going on. And so they're trying to say, can't we just all get along? And Jesus over and over said, no, we can't. They get it. You may not get it. They get what I'm saying. They don't believe me. And so they're going to kill me. In their eyes, it, in the leader's eyes, it was, hey, Jesus, <laughs> it's you or us, and baby, it ain't going to be us. We've got the power here. Did they have the power? No, but if you had been alive in that day, you would have felt very much like they had the power, especially when they lead Jesus to Golgotha and drive nails into his wrist and his feet. And hang him on a cross. Let's back up in this text just a little. Again, no, we're not going backwards because this entire chapter is tied together. Again, what's the sequence? Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, hailed as a king. He walks and looks around the temple. It's late in the day. Doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. And then he leaves, symbolically, very likely. Mark was very, very... Stingy with words, and every word has meaning. He looked around the temple, left. Next morning, he's coming in. There's a fruit, tree, a fig tree right there. He's hungry. It's got leaves on it, the appearance of life. He sees no fruit. He curses it. The disciples are looking at each other like, what is up with that? And then he goes on into the temple, finds this activity, this sales activity. He overturns the 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 tables and the chairs, and he pronounces judgment on <coughs> the temple. <clears throat> then they leave. <clears throat> and by the way, this fig tree, since they're connected, Jesus is obviously pointing to something bigger than his hunger in a tree not bearing fruit when it's not supposed to. He was pointing, in fact, to the temple saying that spiritually hungry people come from all over the world, especially all over this part of the world, and they're looking for something. And there's a great show. There's a big show that's going on at the temple. But they leave just as hungry as they came. Because even though everything looks good, it's dead. They find no spiritual nourishment. In cursing the fig tree, Jesus passed judgment on the leaders and the entire temple system. After clearing the temple and predicting its destruction, Jesus left Jerusalem for the night. On the way back in town Tuesday morning, Jesus and his disciples passed the tree. And that's where we pick it up again. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And that was amazing in and of itself overnight. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I don't know about you, but I used to have this impression, I mean long after I was a believer, that Jesus, you know, this is kind of like being with Jesus. He would walk along, you know, like this, and his disciples would kind of be following behind, and he would stop and he would say, behold, the fig tree. And then he would talk, you know, and then he'd go on. And then, you know, he would say, behold, the lilies of the valley, you know, and behold, when thou prayest, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, I'm I'm, I'm making fun of me, not Scripture. But look, everything, and so, and, and, and some of his teaching seems just disjointed. It's like, what? I mean, think about this one. Jesus, look at the fig tree. Have faith in God. That's just weird to me. Unless there's something that I'm missing. He, and, and we are missing something. And then he says, if you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and you believe in your heart, it will be done for you. Almost certainly, Jesus was looking across the valley to the Temple Mount, and he was talking about this mount and all that it represented. This mountain, 
This day in which people go to the temple and they offer sacrifices, it is almost done. And the new way involves faith and prayer and forgiveness. In this way, you go in, you do what you're supposed to do, you look good, and it really doesn't matter what you're like on the inside. You just appear before men that you've got it all together. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You know, I think that at some point in our lives it it, it all kind of comes together. We hold things against people. Look, we, we trust Christ early in our lives or early in, you know, in young adulthood or whatever. And then we have to fight the exact same temptation that was there to the Jews. We all sort of, you know, we all just flow into the temple. We flow out. We know the we, we know how it all works. But we have these grudges against people. And we have sins that we struggle with, you know, and and just can't seem to get it right. And we can't be any more faithful than other people are. And so we start making excuses for our sins. And we, we, we get a system every bit as elaborate as the Jews had. But when he says it's no longer about this, it's about faith in God. It's about forgiveness. Not only of your sins, but you forgiving others. Why? Because you are called to be like Jesus. And you can't do that. You can't do it by imitation. If he's not living in you, it doesn't happen. Religion or man's attempt to get to God isn't about humbly asking for forgiveness. Unless it's so that others will know how humble we are. To be angry about such a statement proves my point, actually. And it's not my point, it's Jesus' point. Typically, religion is not about forgiving others, but making sure that others live up to your standard of religiosity, your standard of righteousness. That's why you can go easy on yourself for some of the sins that you commit and look at someone else or say, well, I never... Jesus said that the way he would provide access to God would involve righteousness. All right, but it would be his righteousness that made a way for forgiveness. Once and for all. And even though all that's not stated right there by the fig tree, it's all encompassed in the comments that he makes. It's all of Christianity, which is Jesus' teaching, plus that of the apostles who helped us make sense. Not only of all that Jesus taught when he was there, but how the Old Testament, how this whole system was pointing to him. I want to close uh, by thinking just briefly about verse 24. What does it mean to you that you can ask God for anything in prayer? And if you believe, it's yours. What does that mean to you? Add to this John 14, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will Do it. No doubt you've had people say to you, if not, or you've heard this kind of exchange take place, even if it's not been said to you, that when you pray for something, according to the promises of God, if you believe in your heart, you will receive it. And you haven't received it, so something. You know, the only thing I can say is your faith is just not what it's supposed to be. But can that really be true? When only a few hours after, can, can that be what Jesus means exactly? When a few hours after he said this to the disciples in John 14, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if there's any way, please, I'm begging you. Let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of wrath that would be poured out on the sins of people. Not that Jesus was fearful of dying. We'll talk about this a lot more when we get to it. But he said, let this. And yet the heavens were silent. God, heal me. God, heal my wife. Heal my husband. Heal 
my child healed, my boss healed, and the heavens are silent. So have you been told it's your lack of faith? I have. I, I was told that when Linda was sick. Hey, go to this place, let these people pray for her, because clearly you're not cutting the mustard. That was added, I added that, but it was pretty clear. To ask God for something in Jesus' name means to ask in accordance with all that Jesus taught and in accordance with his life, death, and resurrection. Do you suppose that those apostles that heard him that night, probably just the 12, were with Jesus that night before he was arrested? Do you suppose that some of them along the way said, God, please spare me from imprisonment? Please spare me from martyrdom. Every one of them except John died a, a martyr's death. And John didn't have an easy life. He was sent off late in his life to bust rocks with the rogues of the empire on the island of Patmos. He died peacefully as far as we know. Not, don't think that dipped in the boiling oil is true. It's a legend, I think. But Peter being crucified upside down, probably not a legend. Look, these guys, it didn't end well for them in the ways that people want to play with these verses and say, if you will just ask God, everything will be okay. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Where? To the cross. To tell someone that his or her prayers have not been answered because of a lack of faith, is not only cruel, it is utterly unbiblical. We're going to observe in just a moment the Lord's Supper. It, not only remembering Jesus' death for us, but we will be fellowshipping or participating with Him, 2 Corinthians 10 or 1 Corinthians 10, as we partake of the bread and the juice. It's gluten-free bread, by the way, if you have health issues. At this table, we affirm that Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. And he took our sins upon himself and he drank the cup of God's wrath so that we might live, live eternally. We're united with Christ both in his death and his resurrection. And to pray in Jesus' name means to pray in accordance with all that Jesus stood for, all that he is. All who he is. So to pray in Jesus' name means to pray that God will be glorified in our lives regardless of what his will is for our life. Pray that God will be glorified regardless of what his will for you. And what is his will for you concerning this issue that is so troubling before you? I don't know. And you don't know. You don't know. You can't be absolutely certain. About what God's will for your life is. And I can promise you the one who questions the quality of your faith. Faith has no idea what God's will is for you. <coughs> he doesn't know whether you'll be healed. Or whether you'll be married. Or whether your marriage will stay intact. Or whether your children will turn out well. Or whether you'll get the funds that you need to make the mortgage payment. They don't know. And it's not about your faith. Should we pray specifically about these things? Absolutely. Does God do miraculous things? Yes. In, in picture of all that life is going to be when Jesus is reigning completely. He does these beautiful things. But not always. Why? For his glory. It makes no sense now. But it will make sense one day. Should we pray? That's why we're meeting Wednesday night. And we're going to pray fervently. For healing. For jobs, and you know what? God's going to do some of that according to his will. He's going to answer those prayers. But if he doesn't answer your prayer, does he love you less? Is it your faith? No. He calls all of us, all, all, he calls all of us to bear our cross. 
and to receive good and evil from his hand. Evil not being, uh, just simply saying that God is sovereign. He allows bad things to come into our lives. What's our job? To be faithful. Ah, but I can't be faithful. Exactly. That's why Jesus died. That's why we come to this table this morning. I'd like to ask the servers to come. If you would, take, take your seats on this front row while we look at what Jesus said on that night in which he instituted the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> in a few moments, here is the way we are going to proceed with our communion. You'll be coming down these rows, these inside middle rows, not the exact middle row, but the next two over. Coming this way, a station will be in front of each. There will be a communion station in front of each section. Take the one that's in front of your section. Take from the one. You can stop for just a moment. You can pause right there and receive the elements. Or you, you can take them back to your to seat and, and, and receive them there. The servers, the worship team will partake first. And then ushers will alert you when your row is to go in these two sections. Um, <clears throat> if you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is your first time at Grace Community Church, we welcome you to participate with us. If you're saying, oh, I've got sin in my life, Jesus died for sin, confess that right now. He has promised if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll give you just a moment to do that. But let's hear from Mark. From the words of Mark. And Mark was, as I said, very stingy with his words. He gets right to the point. In Mark 14, it says, As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, it said in other places, which is poured out for many. This life is not about ritual, and it's very easy for this to become ritual. It's about faith. And when we come to this table, believe in your heart. Jesus died for you. Nourish on him as we partake. And may this time be for you what he has intended. A blessing and a help in your walk with him. Let's pray.